Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. Take out your notes there, your notebooks or whatnot, and... and um however it is that you like to take notes. Today's message is titled, Such. It's very simple, it's titled, The Touch. The Touch. Why don't you touch someone next to you right there and say, The Touch. How awkward, huh? How awkward. The Touch. You've ever experienced the touch? You ever experienced the touch? Where just one touch can change your life forever? Man. Um, if you haven't, I, I pray that you experience this touch. And, and I want to kind of get into this today. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to touch a whole bunch of different areas. And um, it might seem at moments where it seems like a whirlwind. But I promise you it's all going to come down to make a beautiful picture at the end. So if you're inside my mind, my mind is a lot like that. It's a whirlwind. But somehow when I put my head on the pillow, it'll, it'll, all come to, it'll, <laughs> it'll all come to its place. All the pieces will be put together. So as we get into this message, the touch today, I started to think about something because if you remember two weeks ago, I believe so, um, during worship, we came up here, I came up here, and I jumped into this story about the woman with the flow of blood and her, what, touching Jesus. You guys remember that? And I talked about the importance of touching him, that sometimes we come with our pain and our struggle or, or our shame and we feel like, well, God, I'm waiting for you. You need to touch me. And the reality is he wants to call us in that pain, in that struggle, in that shame, to learn to touch him with that condition or in that condition. And it speaks something beautiful of God and it speaks something about his people. So I, I, that's kind of what's been on my mind for weeks. And I want to continue to touch up on that and, and get into that. And hopefully it brings some growth and hopefully it brings some conviction Hopefully it brings some encouragement and it brings the, what it needs to, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Amen? Amen. When we look at this phrase or this, these two words or this one word, touch, um, one of the things that I will focus a lot, again, I'm going to go a little bit all over, but is the word shame. And I do believe this. I believe that, I believe that a lot of people are struggling with shame and that, that at some point we all have felt shame in our lives. At least everyone here at some point has felt shame in our lives. And I'm not going to ask you to stand up and say, hey, you know, tell me what shame you've gone through or are going through. I'm not, I won't do that to you necessarily. But, but I also believe this, that yes, at some point we have, but some of us continue to carry the shame. And, and those are two different statements that at some point we've carried shame, but yet some of us are still carrying shame today. And, and, and that's, that's important because I don't know... I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that's God's purpose in your life. Amen? And you've probably thought to yourself at some past time, man, if I come to Christ, if I, if I try this God stuff out, if I give my heart to God, if I open this up to the Lord, if I, if I come to Jesus, I no longer will have to carry this weight of shame. Many people think like that. Oh, when I come to Christ, all things will work out. For good and all that, like, like they do, but, but there comes a responsibility on our side as well. And then you find yourself in this journey, this walk, this race, this, this race, this faith, this relationship, whatever you want to call it. 
And some of us can still admit this, that, man, I still carry shame. You still carry shame. I'm in this journey, and maybe you've been in it for years, for months, for days, and you're like, man, I still carry shame. For some, it's become easier. For others, it's become more difficult. What I mean by that is by, for some, it's become lighter, and for others, it just continues to be heavy. And this shame in your life, if you're honest with yourself, it may be affecting your walk with Christ. And, and do not answer this out loud, but think about if there's shame in your life or if there ever has been shame in your life. Have you seen that come to a place where it's affected your walk with Christ? Is it today affecting your walk with Jesus? The continual shame that you have in your life. You, you may have moments where you have great highs. But then there are moments when you go through, through deep, great and deep lows. You may feel that your life, especially your spiritual life, if you deal with shame, you, you may feel that your spiritual life is one of inconsistency. Ever felt like that? Man, I just feel like my life is inconsistent, it's specifically my, my spiritual life. It's a constant inconsistency. It, it's, it's a re repeated feeling of inconsistency um, that I have. Shame has a way of working in us. Shame has a way of working in us. It can, it can use us to begin to feel, it can, it can cause us to begin to feel guilty. Have you, have you allowed shame today or in past times, have you allowed shame in your lives to start bringing guilt and shame are two th different things. Have you allowed shame to bring forth guilt? You're walking around guilty because of a shame that you're carrying. It can cause you and make you feel irritable. It can make you feel more bitter and angry. Uh, also, people that, that are filled with this stuff, frequent bouts of wrath even, you know, different things like this that, that it starts to work in us. And you're like, man, I really got to figure out what, what is some of the stuff that I'm carrying inside. Hopefully I'm talking to someone here. You know, and I believe that shame can rob from us. Please listen to this can rob from us what God may be trying to expose us and invite us into. God may be wanting to expose and invite us, come, come, come. But the continual shame in our lives has allowed or has, has, we've allowed it to rob us from that which God wants to do in us. And shame could be anything, you know. I, I don't know. Shame could be whatever. You, you know, shame could be like, I can't believe I'm late to church today. I mean, you could just deal with that much shame that just that right there kills you. It could be anything. It could be, I mean, one of the greatest things that happens to, to women that go through is abortion is, is, is something that it's hard for a woman to, to get over. And they think that it's the unforgivable sin. And it's not. God actually can forgive the act of abortion as well. He's that good. It could be a divorce. It could be, it could be I mean, whatever, a sin, a consistent, a habitual thing. Whatever, whatever it can be and may be, um, it could rob us from what God, God may be trying to expose us and invite us into. Amen? So, a lot of teaching today. So, important to ask yourself, ask yourself this. Ready? What will I do with shame? If we've all admitted at some point we've had shame or we could all admit today that we're struggling with some aspect of shame then the next question is well what am I going to do with this shame where is it going to go this shame what do I do well I'm going to try to keep this very simple today because I don't want to complex things so much as you get into the psychology of things but but here are three basic basic okay basic choices that one can make with their shame are you ready write this down number one everyone say number one 
three basic choices when, it, when we deal with shame in our lives, when we deal with a struggle in our lives. You could, for the sake of your own personal life, substitute shame. Don't be like, oh, I have no shame. So I should not have come today. Everything's just like, I'm good. Substitute shame. Substitute it for sin if, you, if, if that's something you continue to deal with. Substitute it for whatever it is that you know God is going to prick at and point at today. If he wants to correct and he wants to grow you in or grow you out of. So what are three basic choices that one can make? Number one, ready? I will stay stagnant is one choice we could make. I'll stay stagnant, meaning this. I'll stay where I'm at and I'll just deal with it. This is who I am. This is who I'll always be. I just have to come to accept it. Has that ever come out of your mouth? It's never going to change. I'm never going to get better. Nothing can erase what I've done. Nothing can erase what's happened to me. This person just remains at the same place. That is a person that stays stagnant. And that is a choice that maybe some of us can or have made in our lives. Oh, number one, just staying stagnant. So if there's a continual shame, a continual thing that God is trying to, to touch us up on, are, are, we, are we at this place where we just stay stagnant? We say, well, this is just how it is forever. Or this is how it's just going to be. This is just how my life has always been. And what it is, is it could be without us even knowing subconsciously when you go deep into the matter, it could be a continual behaviors from past generations. How many times have we spoken that about, about that here in our church? That past behaviors of your mother and your mother's mother and your father and your father's father, you start to see, holy cow, as much as I couldn't stand my father when I was young, as much as I couldn't stand my mother when I was young, I'm becoming just like them. What does that mean? You just walked into the same system in how they were living and how they were reacting and how they were doing life together. Their, your marriage looks like their marriage or your marriage looked like their marriage. And, and your friend, you get what I'm trying to say? Because it's just a continual thing that played down. And then Christ wants to what, free us and, and he wants to save us and he wants to renew us um, from that place. And, and you're now, this is just who I am. No, this is not just who you are. In Christ, there is so much more. We're not called just to stay stagnant. Amen? Number two, the, the second choice that one can make is, well, I'll just go back. If I'm not staying stagnant, well, then I'll just go back. Many people, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of whatever it is that they're dealing with, they decide, this is what I'll do. I'll just go back. If you remember, the Israelites, in their freedom, in their freedom they tell Moses what? You brought us out here to the wilderness to die. Mind you, they have whiplashes in their back. They were slaves in Egypt. They're beaten and bruised. They got scars to testify of the beatings from the Egyptian masters. And, in the, and, and, and with their shirts off, they tell Moses, you brought us here to die. We were better with the Egyptians than we are with you in the wilderness. I mean, think about that mindset. What were they? they? We've preached this here. They were physically out of the body, free in the wilderness, but mentally they were bound and still in Egypt. How many of you have been freed and you know that when you die you're going to go to heaven, but the reality is your mind is still 10 years back? I just, this is, I'm just, just going to go back. I'm just going to go back. I'll go back. You brought us out here to die. We're, we're better off in Egypt.
We were better off in the, as slaves to the Egyptians. See, shame can take us back to the place of false identity. Listen to this. Where we identify ourselves to a place in which we were once in and not to a person in which Christ is trying to transform us into. Shame can take us to a place of false identity where we identify ourselves to a place in which we were once in and not to a person in which Christ is trying to transform us into. To reach the, listen, to reach the promise of transformation is too difficult. Because it cuts through the process of wilderness. So what happens there? Well, this is the place which is exposing me for who I really am and encountering him for who he really is. So what do we say in the place of going back? We say things like, well, I'm just not ready for that. I'm just too tired for this. I'm scared for what he will tell me in the wilderness. I'm scared how he may use me in the wilderness. Listen, I'm scared or or better yet, God forbid my shame come out. God forbid I have to face my shame. God forbid I have to walk through it. God forbid I have to use it. Can you imagine that the shame that you're carrying now becomes the instrument of ministry that God uses to set people free? That scares the heck out of people because now you're an open book exposing your shame to use it for the glory of God. And now the shame no longer has a hold on you because it's open for everyone to know that which once bound me is now the banner that I wave to free others. But if you're constantly going back, you'll never wave the banner of freedom today. You'll always go back to despair and run back to the cave and run back to complaining, bouts of wrath and bitterness and anger because you haven't learned how to use the shame for the goodness and for the glory and for the power of God for the sake of the gospel. So we go back, like the Israelites' mindset, right? We go back. How is he going to use me in this? God forbid I have to come out with this. I'm better just going back. That's the second choice that we can make. And then the third one is this one. Write it down. I'll go forward. Everyone say go forward. And that's the third choice we can make. I'll take hold of my shame and I'll go forward. Listen. I choose to lean into Christ with my shame. I'm already carrying it, so I might as well use it to get to him. Did you hear what I just said? I'm already carrying this load on my shoulder, so instead of allowing it to separate me from him, I might as well use it to get me closer to him. It all depends on your mindset. Do you you? Do you allow the stuff that you're carrying to separate you from God or do you allow the stuff that you carry to bring you closer to God? that, that, That stuff right there, don't blame that stuff on God. That depends on what you do with the heaviness of life. With the shame and with the burden of life. What you do right there, that's up to you. You could get bad or you could get good. But it's up to you. And, and, and this is the person that says, I'm going to go forward with my shame. I'm carrying it, so I'm going to use it to get to him. I think of the poor, and I, and I um, describe him with all respect. I know I'm going to see him one day, one day. Like sometimes when I read the Bible and I preach, I don't know if you see you, stuff, you guys understand this stuff. Because um, do you guys know these things? Let me kind of, um, kind of explain this to you. <clears throat> you guys understand like, the stuff that happens here is spoken about in heaven. So like, one day I'm going to walk into heaven and I'm going to see this man. He's going to be like, hey. <laughs> you know, on March, let's say, 7th or 8th, no, 8th. 
on March 8th, 2020, you know, you kind of like threw me under the bus. You know, I know I'm going to see some of these people in eternity. I'll go forward. I, I, talking about going forward, listen to this. I think of the, the poor, blind beggar Bartimaeus. I get it. Like, he's not poor, blind, and begging anymore in eternity. And he's like, why do you still describe me like that? But Because I was trying to make a point, Bartimaeus. You have to deal with, you have to work with me here. We're in heaven now. We're all good. I'll go forward. I might as well use this shame to get to him. So I think of the, the poor blind beggar Bartimaeus. Listen, as Jesus, um, a lot of teaching, as Jesus is entering Jericho, which by the way is a very shameful place to a Jew. We don't have time to get into that. When this shameful beggar on the road begging, begging this beggar Bartimaeus, a man which people don't have no dealing with, a man whose condition was shameful and disgusting and unclean, he hears the commotion and it's that Jesus of Nazareth is here. He's walking through my out of all the towns today. Jesus of Nazareth is walking down my sidewalk. So poor blind beggar Bartimaeus hears the commotion. It's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's here. He's at my house. So this man makes a decision for himself. Listen, he could have easily said, he's here. Let's see if he even comes and looks at me. Let's see if he talks to me. Let's see if he touches me. Let's see if he has mercy for my condition. A poor blind beggar Bartimaeus at the side of the road. He could have made that decision and gone right into bitterness because Jesus was coming to his town. But he makes a decision on that day. And the decision he makes is, I will not stay stagnant. I will not go back, but I will go forward. In Mark chapter 10, verse 47, it says this. When he heard him, no, actually, verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I believe he was yelling it. I don't believe, why do I believe that? First off, Though, uh, though the majority of errors in the Bible <clears throat> can be your periods and your commas and exclamation points and stuff like that, I believe that it really is accurate when it has an exclamation point here. <clears throat> because why? There's a massive crowd. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of noise. Jesus is walking, and he needs Jesus to hear him. And he's a poor blind beggar. He ain't running to Jesus because he's going to run into a tree or something. So on the side of the road, he is screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48 says, then many warned him to be quiet. Many of them warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more. I believe that proper words there should be. And he cried out even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. I believe that's how it went. Today I want to make sure I ask you this again. What will you do with your shame? Will you go back? Will you stay stagnant? Or will you lean into Christ because you have everything to gain? You have to make that decision right now. Will I go back? Will I stay stagnant? Or will I go into Jesus because I have everything to gain in him? Let's read how the story ends. Verse 49 says that when Jesus heard him, he stopped. And he says, tell him to come here. I love this part because the Bible is so fun to read. So they called the blind man, and look what they say now. Cheer up. (laughs) Come on, he's calling you. 
Can you imagine being poor, blind, beggar, Bartimaeus? Cheer up. You just told me to shut up. You just told me, be quiet. Don't make any noise. Jesus, because why, why do you think? Can I ask you a question? Because we're a church, and we may do community just like Jericho does community. Why do you think they told the poor, blind, beggar, Bartimaeus to be quiet? Hey, you're too shameful. And if you become scandalous of any kind of sort, Jesus may never walk into this town again. What an honor it is to have Jesus of Nazareth to come to our town. Don't mess this up. Close your mouth, shut up, and don't get involved. And he screams louder, and Jesus says, hey, bring him to me. And they're like, never mind what we said. <laughs> Psych. We were just kidding. We love you, bro. Come on. He's calling you. Who would have thought? And that's the way Jesus' heart functions. He's like, I didn't come for any of you. For all of you that thought you need, that you need no doctor, but I came for him. I came for the one who is in need, who is sick, who is broken, who is poor, who is blind. I came for him to heal him. The one that you were trying to quiet is the one that I'm going to expose before all of you. It's such a beautiful story. So they look at him and they say, come on, he's calling you now. He's calling you. Come. He's calling you. In verse 50, Bartimaeus, look what he does, right? I, I, I picture him doing something like this. You know, I've gone to enough heat games and I've seen this stuff, man. And, and maybe he's there. Maybe he beatboxes and he, to get some money. I don't know what he does, but he's there and he's screaming. And the moment that Jesus says, come to me, the Bible says in verse 50, he threw aside his coat. He jumps up and he comes to Jesus. And I wrote this down in my notes. I want to see if you catch this. I believe that when Jesus calls you to him, it's to throw off your garments of shame so that he can redress you, redress you with the garments of righteousness. So I'm taking away the garments that were put there for you, to, that, were, that were put upon you and you carried upon you, which were garments of shame, poor, blind, beggar, Bartimaeus. And now you come to me and you release yourself from the garments that once held you bound. Because now, in encounter with me, I will redress you with new garments. And these garments are called garments of righteousness. When Adam presented himself to God in the garden, any of you remember that story? God was not impressed at all. Listen to me. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Eve, for trying to be a fashionista. But God was not impressed at all with the fig leaves that they sewed together to cover their privates. He was not impressed at all. Like, hey, are you wearing leaves? Well, we noticed we were naked. And who told you we were naked? Well, we're kind of shameful because we sinned. Remember that story? Shame. He was not impressed at all. Like, hey, you know, that was a good job, though, Adam. Like, I like the way you sewed the leaves together and you covered her up. And you covered yourself up. He was not impressed at all by the fig leaves they put together. But there was still, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, we see that there was still grace found in God. So what does he do? He sacrifices the first animal for man's sin. And what does God do? He clothes them. He puts clothes on their nakedness, on their shame. And he says, take the fig leaves off. It looks silly on you. Put this leather on. I sacrificed an animal for you. And he puts on new garments of an animal upon Adam and Eve. That's crazy. That's crazy. What, what is that called? Oh, I called it this. Ready? It is the garment exchange. How many of you have gone through a garment exchange with God? Where you've taken off your clothes and he's redressed you. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about the garment exchange. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, took on our garments, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, to put on his garments. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you're taking notes. We switched the garments. We, he took our sin, and we took on his righteousness. How many of you can say amen for that? The touch, man, the touch. Let's keep reading. So blind Bartimaeus comes to Jesus, Right? And Jesus being so beautiful. Okay, it's you, Jesus. What does Jesus ask him? Verse uh, 51. What do you want from me? (laughs) What do you think? I want to see. My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus says to him, go, your faith has healed you. Instantly the man, listen to this. Such an important part of this verse. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Did you catch that? I love that when he could see, it leads him to one thing, to follow Jesus. I'll say that again. When he could see, blind, now he's not blind. Poor, now he's not poor. Beggar, now he's not beggar. Bartimaeus. When he is free from that and he sees Christ for who he is, one thing happens from him. And it's what? I'm going to follow this man now. I wrote this down. I highlighted this. Maybe you should write this. When he removes the shame and we could see Christ for who he really is, I believe we will then begin to encounter the true meaning of what it is to follow him. It sounds like it's such an open sentence. But it's much more weightier and powerful than what it sounds like. Listen to this again. When he removes the shame and we could see Christ for who he really is, I believe he will then begin, I believe we will then begin to encounter the true meaning of what it is to follow him. How about this? Ready? Too many people follow him to then stop following him. I believe it's because they never really saw him. Am I wrong for saying that? If I am, we'll talk after. I believe that many follow him to then stop following him. And it could be because they never really saw him. So come on. You're going to stay stagnant? You're going to go back? Or will you go forward? Huh? Amen? The word shame means this. A painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt. Shortcoming, wrongdoing. Shame means this. A condition of humiliating disgrace or low self-esteem. Specifically, public low self-esteem. Shame also means this. Something that brings disapproval or reproach. So two weeks ago, we got up on worship and we got into Mark chapter 5. And we saw this story. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. We'll do this and then we'll end. He crosses the, the, but this is a little long. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, this is quick today. I'm finally in my message. It'll be fun. <clears throat> in Mark chapter 5, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets off the boat, Mark chapter 5, there's a multitude of people that are waiting for him. You can start turning there, flipping your pages there, or get your eyes ready to look at the screen. But there's a multitude of people. So imagine that Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to Israel with us or if you've ever been there outside, with, you, you know exactly the scenery a little bit of that because we actually did this. 
we followed the steps of Jesus and we went on boat and we crossed the sea. Kind of like Jesus did. On a different kind of boat, but yet on a boat. When he crosses the boat, he gets to the land, he's probably like, hopefully now I could rest. Why? Because if I were to tell you everything that just happened right before this, it was a busy, it was a busy day for him. But when he gets there, there's a multitude of people that are just there waiting for him, salivating, like, like Jesus is here. He has no time to adapt. He has no time to assess the needs of the crowd. And I started to think about my life and our lives, and I said, wow, this calling as we see it in Christ, please listen to this. This calling as we see it in Jesus is constant preparation. It's not necessarily to just be stuck. Let me make sure I say this slow so you don't take my words and twist them. It's not necessarily to just be studied in the scripture, but also to allow our lives to be well studied by the Holy Spirit. And when both those things come, al- come in our lines, when you are well studied in scripture and also well studied by the Holy Spirit, what a powerful force that is. So Jesus in his ministry is always prepared. And if you look at him, he's always prepared. And no book can teach and discipline that man or any other man to be well prepared like that. It's something within him that is happening, just like it's something within us that we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do. Nothing could just teach that. Nothing could just allow that and make that happen. And it goes on to say this, that as the crowds were on him, thronged upon him, it says here in verse 22, we are in Mark chapter 5. Listen to this. It says, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus, by name, when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Definitely got the attention of Jesus. Verse 23, and he begged him. He begged him earnestly. And what was he saying? My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and that she will live. What song did we just sing? We just told Jesus we're desperate for you. Here is a man who is a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and he begs earnestly, says, my daughter's going to die. And I look at this and I wrote this question. Do you sense the desperation in the father as he comes to Jesus? Um, Our church has been praying for Gracie. And um, you know what? I'm going to text it to them so they can put it up here at the end of service. If I don't do it, text me. Send me the picture of Gracie. And we're going to pray for her before we end today. But Gracie Romero was one of my students. And I, lo- I love her and her family dearly. And, and she's fighting for her life in, in um, Nicholas Children's. And we've been, I've been able to visit her this weekend. And, um, and, I, and I could hear and I could see in the parents the desperation of, can you just come back? Can you grab oil? Can you grab some of the leaders and come and anoint her with oil? We, we're just believing that. And it's, it's a desperation in a parent's inside of, I just want my daughter to be well. I want to take her off the tubes. I want her to breathe on her own. It's rough. It's rough. It's rough. And here is this man, just like what I've encountered this weekend. And do you sense a desperation? Look at verse 24. So Jesus hears him and says, all right, let's, go, let's do this. And he goes with him. And verse 24 says, and the great multitude followed him and thronged him. Can you pause here for a moment? You would say, God, the multitude, may they have a heart and just let Jesus be with this man who is in desperate need. But the multitude is like, we're not letting go of him. He's here. We don't know when he's going to come back. We're going to just hold on to him. Where are you going? I'm going to go heal this girl who's dying. He's like, well, we're going with you to his house. 
I mean, you look at that and you think, God, they, they're, 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 they're heartless, the, the crowd. So what happens in verse 24 here? Jesus accepts the invitation. You see, he sees the look of desperation in the Father's eyes. He hears the desperation in the Father's voice. Jesus recognizes, and I believe he says this, I'm here for a reason. So let's see what opens up. And here is this man, Jairus. It opens up, and immediately he's faced with this man's problem. He's on the way to touch this man's need. He's, he's on the way to accomplish his assignment. Listen, he's on the way to fulfill his purpose, to reveal himself to this man, Jairus, and to his family. He's there to fulfill. Then as this is happening, what may be to Jairus as an interruption may be to Jesus an invitation for someone else. Let me explain to you what I mean. One man's interruption may be another man's invitation. We've learned here at our church that, that one man's desperation, one man's pain, may be another man's blessing. How many of you has your pain been someone else's strength? I see a lot of heads nodding, so I'm taking that as a yeah. So let's keep reading and see what happens here. Because now you have what? You're going to have two situations going on. Watch this. So now, remember where is he going? Real quick, pop quiz, where is he going? Jairus' house. Who's Jairus? He's a what? He's a leader, a ruler of the what? Synagogue. He's also a religious leader. What's going on with his daughter? She's at home and she's what? Dying. What would you say on the scale of high importance or low importance? Where would you say you rank that at? Yeah, high importance, okay? Extreme high importance. Why? Because the law, watch this, every second counts. I'm going to prove it to you. So as he's, I, I think now they're not doing this anymore. He's not just waving. I believe now him and Jairus are doing what he's, come on, where's it at? Where do I make a left? Where do I make a left? And they are going to Jairus' house with the crowd following him. As this is happening, let's keep reading the story. Verse 25 says, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She suffered many things from many physicians, and she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Luke says it this way. This woman who had spent all her livelihood on physicians, and she could not be healed by any. I wonder why. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, listen now, and she touched his garment, and she said to herself, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Amen? Verse 30, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around into the crowd, and this is what he says, who touched my clothes? Funny Jesus, man. He had a sense of humor, funny. Funny. How many people were around him? Throng of people. There's engulfed around him. Jesus of Nazareth. One woman touches him, and she says, who touched me? And they're like, we all did. This is funny. Sense of humor. But let's really think about what's happening here. And I want us now to look at, yes, the woman with the flow of blood. And she's touching him and she's in desperate need herself. But do not forget for once where they're going. Their, their aim and their goal is Jairus' house. Was never for the woman with the flow of blood. The whole encounter in Mark 5 here is, let's get to Jairus' household to heal his daughter. Let's not forget about him. He's a big part of this story. 
Remember Jairus, his daughter is still there. She's about to die. Now, I want you to imagine right now, we're talking about the woman of the flow of blood. We flipped this character script. But watch this. As we're talking about the woman of the flow of blood, imagine being Jairus right now. <laughs> why are you stopping, Jesus? I would. If I was Jairus right there, I'd be like, why are you stopping, Jesus? Here's some of the things I would say. Who cares who touched you? <laughs> we all have touched you. What do you think he said to Jesus that the Bible maybe doesn't tell us? Hurry up. Hurry up, let's go. My daughter is going to die if we don't hurry. Hurry up. Who cares? You touch them, you touch them, who touch them? Everyone touch them, Mary. Let's go. Jesus, hurry up. My daughter's going to die. Everyone touch them. Just admit it so we could get going. He's in desperate need. He, how do I know he's in desperate need? Because a ruler of the synagogue falls at his feet. He's in desperate need. Just come on, get with it. Who's touching you? Who cares who's touching you? Let's go see my daughter. We're in a hurry. I want you to understand this. Sometimes in our great desperation, we fail to realize that there are others that are hurting right alongside of us. And they share in the great desperation as well. Because it's not just about your great desperation. It's not just about your great pain and your great hurt. If you look around, there's others that are around you that are also filled and with great desperation and for a need of the touch of God. You're not the only one that's crying to touch him. There may be others around you that are crying every night and even thinking about taking their lives because they need a touch from God. But we get so caught up, come on, 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 come to my house. And he forgot to think, this woman for 12 years has been dead. My daughter's just dying for a moment. I mean, it's insane. It's an awesome story. So what happens here? Jesus stops and he looks at the crowd. And he's like, why are you stopping? He just stops. He looks at the crowd. And I wrote this down. Because Jairus is not more important than those around Jesus. You know, when people come up to me and say, I need you to pray, because you and God have a... Yeah, I do. Me and God have a connection, yes. I will admit that. But what's up with you and God? You don't have a connection. Jairus was no important than anyone else in that crowd. Not to Jesus, because listen, yes, Jairus holds the title of ruler of the synagogue, but to Jesus, everyone standing around him, touching him, holds the title of son and daughter to his heart. But one touch is different from all the other touches. It comes from a woman with a very serious infirmity of this day. She couldn't stop the flow of blood. We all know what that is, right? Good. It keeps me away from getting weird into that conversation. But she can't stop the flow of blood. And to the Jewish people, according to the law, this was a problem. Amen? So what's going to happen here is that Jairus, his interruption is going to come and become this woman's invitation. You see, Jairus thought that the whole purpose of Jesus, listen to this, Jairus thought that the whole purpose of Jesus being in his town was to go heal his daughter but his interruption, uh, this woman, now he's going to recognize how God's going to use his very own pain. And that very own journey he needs to take to her, his house to also touch this woman. So Jesus like, since I'm already going to your house, there's also a woman that's been crying out here for 12 years. I'm going to run into her on the way. And I'm going to pause and detour. And I'm also going to heal her as I'm on the way to your house. 
things that we don't see when it's happening, but Jesus is planning it out. Amen? I want you to understand the complexity and the danger of what is happening with this woman with the flow of blood because it's a problem to all the Jewish people around her and around Jesus and Jesus being a Jew himself. It's a huge problem. I'm just going to read to you a little bit. In Leviticus chapter 15 verse 25 says this, If a woman has a flow of blood, the law, for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean as during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. And This is the Bible. Any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during that time will be unclean. Everyone, welcome to Nest Church. Amen. <laughs> just as during her... <laughs> Just as during her normal menstrual period, verse 27, if any of you touch these things, you will be ceremonially unclean as well. You must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until the evening. You know, after you read this, you you picture living like this, not not just during the moment of the woman's cycle, but even days after the woman's cycle. Look how extreme this is. But imagine now grabbing these verses and recognizing that this isn't just for a moment. This is for 12 years that this woman is living under such bondage. So everything's unclean. She's unclean. Everything she touches is unclean. Her clothes are unclean. If she sits down in this chair, we got to do away with this whole row right here because this chair is unclean. I mean, it's just such a bondage, such a headache. How do you keep up with that stuff? This is more complicated than you could ever imagine. It keeps on saying in verse 28, it says, When the woman's bleeding stops, she must count off seven days. Then she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons and present them to the priest of the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Through this process, the priest will purify her before the Lord for the ceremonial impurity caused by her bleeding. This is how you will guard the people of Israel from ceremonial uncleanness. Otherwise, they would die, for their impurity would defile my tabernacle that stands among them. These are the instructions for dealing with anyone who has a bodily discharge. I'm just getting into the woman because if you read before this, it talks about men's bodily discharge too, but we're not going to get into that right now. Okay? You read some of this and you're just like, whoa, we're talking about a bodily discharge in this woman that can't be controlled for 12 years or healed for 12 years. Everyone say 12 years. That's a lot of years, right? And what do we know about this woman? Well, we know this. She has a bleeding condition. The issue has continued for 12 years. That's a very long time, as we just admitted. Second, she has spent all her money in treatments from many doctors, and what? Nothing has helped her. In fact, the blood issue has actually grown and gotten worse. Imagine what it would be like to have this hemorrhage for 12 years. Imagine what it would be like having a flow of blood, right, for 12 years. Imagine what she felt living her life each day, believing that she was unclean. Imagine this woman. Imagine the shame she lived with. We also know that the Jewish law declared her to be ceremonially unclean due to her bleeding issue. This meant that she would not have been permitted to enter into the temple of the Jewish religious ceremonies. She could not go in. According to the law, anything or anyone that she touched became unclean as well. Are you guys understanding that this is not just a woman with a condition? This is a woman who is a very serious problem in her community. I'm wondering what shame you're holding on to. The fact that she was in the crowd and she was pressing around Jesus means that every person, each person who bumped into her now, according to the law, would also become unclean. Guess who she touches? While she's in the crowd, touches the garments of Yeshua, touches the garments of Jesus of Nazareth. Guess what happens to Jesus now? He too becomes unclean. She touched his clothes. But after 12 years of suffering, 
12 years of living in shame, she was obviously what? She was desperate for a miracle. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him to the crowd and she touched his cloak. And because she thought this one thing, if I just touch his clothes, I'm going to be healed. And as soon as the woman touches Jesus, what happens in scripture? Her bleeding stops. She knows she's been healed. In an instant, Jesus does what no doctor in 12 years had been able to do. What is happening? He's proving his power, the power of Christ. And it illustrates an important point about Jesus and the law. Leviticus chapter 15 verse 31, God says this. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God dwelt among the Israelites. But here in Mark chapter 5, as we call it the New Testament, God dwells among them in the person who is Jesus Christ. So what happens? Through Jesus, the penalties of the laws are reversed. The contamination of this world has no effect on Jesus Christ. The woman does not make Jesus, who is God's dwelling, unclean. Instead, God's dwelling, who is Jesus, makes the woman who is unclean, clean again. Because of a touch. Who touched me? Everyone, no, someone did the touch. See, you could touch someone, but then you could touch someone. You know, when someone says, oh my God, you've touched me so much. Really, how? How have I touched you? I want to hear about it. But then you know when someone comes up to you and says, man, your life has really touched me. The touch. And this woman, everyone's touching him, but he says, no, 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 no. Who touched me with the touch? It was a different kind of touch. It was faith. It was, it was intense. See, as dirty, as shameful, as sinful as one may be, that which you feel contaminates you has no effect on Christ. He appears in this commotion. He may even use someone else's desperation like Jairus. In order to walk into your life to invite you to what? Touch me. Touch me. I allowed Jairus' daughter to be sick to the point of death. So also that you could get to me in this crowd. I could pass by your hood. And that you could finally what? Come and touch me. All right, I'm going to read fast because I have to get through this. I want to end already. But watch this. One commentary describes it this way. I'm going to read through it. A commentary. Not my words, but I like the way it is written. This woman... <clears throat> everyone knew that this woman had the flow of blood. Everyone knew it because according to the religious law, she was unclean, had to be ostracized. This woman was condemned by religious law to a feeling, a belief that she was condemned to believe that she was soiled and unworthy. Listen to that. Number two, not only was she unclean, but anything that she touched was unclean. This meant it was her responsibility not to contaminate others. And we know that this was the way she felt because the text says that when she had, been, had to identify herself as the one who touched Jesus, she came in fear and trembling. She knew she was unclean and had hoped to pass, and she had hoped nobody would notice her. She knew that by touching the hem of Jesus' garments, she made him unclean. The story leaves no doubt about how she felt. She knew that now Jesus would have to observe some washing rituals in order to purify himself. Number three, can you imagine the state of mind of this person? She had indeed internalized the condemnation of her society and her religion, and she had been socialized to think of herself as dirty, soiled, and filthy. Last little paragraph. Is this 
Is it the struggle that pushes her on that gives her strength, the strength to touch Jesus' garment? And because she is willing to struggle, because she calls forth from the depth of her being her own power, that is why she can't. That is why she can benefit from Jesus' power. In the version of this story in Luke's gospel, you remember how Jesus responded. Everyone is pressing against Jesus, so to his question, who touched me, Peter says, everyone is touching you, master. But that is not what Jesus was talking about. Someone had touched him in such a way, the touch, that he perceived that power had gone out of him. The woman took the initiative. This woman dredged up from her battered self, from her sense of personal uncleanness. She dredged up a positive sense of self, of her life, of her body, of who she was. That positive sense of self, that was her power. And that power touch of the woman was what Jesus felt. Her power called forth his and he released his power unto her. Pretty cool way of looking at it. So as I get ready to wrap this up, I say this. Listen. We know what sin does. We know what shame does. What does it do? Well, how many of you have had sin or shame in your life? It isolates us. And it causes many of us to run away instead of running towards. Shame and sin, it causes us to be stagnant. It causes us to go back to what we've been called out from. And maybe the Lord, I wrote this down, read it just like I wrote it, maybe the Lord is allowing an interruption in your life. Or maybe he is granting you with an invitation through someone else's interruption, someone else's desperation or pain. And all he's asking you to do is, would you touch me today? As we end, I want to read this for a moment. Let's go back to Mark chapter 5 here. Remember where we just left off at? Who touched me? And she comes with fear and trembling. It's I. And she says, he says now in verse 34, look at this, what he says in verse 34. Such a beautiful next two verses, what I'm about to read here. He says, daughter, this is the woman with the flow of blood. We haven't even talked about Jairus again. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. No more flow of blood. Everyone say next verse. While he was still speaking, I believe speaking to the woman with the flow of blood or the woman with the ex-flow of blood. Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. And look what they said. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Everyone hear that? Imagine being Jairus now. This, I can't say the words, right? This darn woman just allowed my daughter to die. I hope she's happy that she's healed because my daughter's not. You ever felt like that? Someone else's healing becomes your misery or something like that? Don't bother Jesus no more. She's dead. She's dead. Let's go to 36 for a moment. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, I love this, do not be afraid. Only believe. Can you imagine being just, what are you talking about? My cousin just ran from my house and told me she's dead. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Believe what? That we're going to bury her? Believe what? That you healed this woman, bind you didn't believe what? See, 
in this passage, look how Jesus works here. Only Jesus can do something like this. I go crazy. Jesus is this amazing. Here it is. Ready? He's dealing with so much more here. I don't know if you've caught it yet. Let me wrap it up this way. Ready? Let's focus here on the two supporting characters. Away from Jesus, away from Christ, Christ is the main character in the story. But there are also supporting characters around him in this story. What is he doing with Jairus and what is he doing with the woman with the flow of blood? Here's what I wrote down. He's dealing with faith in both of their lives. Number one, to the woman, he's saying, will you have the faith to still come and touch me with your shame and I will heal you and free you? Number two, to Jairus the ruler, do you have faith that I will come to you, to your house, to your daughter and touch her and that she will live. Did you catch that? Jesus is teaching two lessons. I'm going to teach you how I touch you and I'm going to teach her how she touches me. All in the same place at the same time. Right there amongst the crowd. I touch you and, and you touch me and, and I touch you and you touch me. And I touch you and you touch me and I'll touch your daughter and this daughter will touch me and because this is what it's supposed to look like the touch goes both ways I will touch you but will you touch me so I'll teach her to touch me but I'll teach you I'll touch you and it doesn't mean that I love her less and I love you more I love him more and I love it's just that every person needs to be dealt with differently and right now you need the touch and right now she needs to touch me and yet in the teaching of both of them I'm still God and I still know what I'm doing and what am I doing I'm teaching the faith of touching me and I'm teaching the faith to allow me to touch you because some people have been so hurt by people touching them that they won't even allow God to touch them because if man has hurt you so bad so will he so don't touch me, God, because my father has hurt me. And some of you have come from homes that your father has done things that no father should do to their child. And because your father has done to you what no father should do to their child, you automatically think that your father in heaven is that same father. So what does he do now? He's got to interrupt your life and he's got to teach you now. Let me touch you in ways that your father failed to touch you in. You know what I'm trying to do with my kids? As much as I touch them, I'm also trying to touch them in the ways that God wants to touch them. Why? So that when it comes to God touching them, they could be sensitive to it and understand it. Why? Because my Father on earth has taught me what my Father in heaven is like by touching me on earth. But I also have to allow my kids to touch me. Some of the greatest ministries and ministry moments in my life has been, especially right now, my son, when he's opened his mouth and spoken into my life. I probably have never been touched in the last seven years by someone so much like my son. My son is the greatest prophet in my life. Because the father needs to also be touched by their child. And the child definitely needs to be touched by their father. I shared with some of you guys in a meeting about my vision for 2020 and forgive me it has nothing to do with you guys my vision for 2020 God was so strong he says focus on your wife and on your kids so we started to have Bible studies together now finally after 12 years 11 years married yesterday 
And we started to do little studies with the kids, and the kids are dancing and worshiping the Lord. Never have we used to do that in our house. We started now. So much that my son's like, is today Bible day? Is today family Bible? And one day I shared this with you guys, and forgive me for being repetitive for those I've told in the, in the private, but I'm laying down with him in bed, and we're praying, and we do our little prayers and all that. He says, Dad, I just want you to know that you're the best pastor. And I said, well, son, I wouldn't say I'm the best pastor, no. I'm just trying my best, but I'm not the best. He goes, no, Dad, I want you to know that you're doing an awesome job. And I said, well, thank you. Thank you, son. And I'm laying next to him in the bed. He's telling me that he puts his head on my chest and he says, you're, you're, you're the best. You're doing an awesome job as a pastor. And right then and there, the Holy Spirit hit me. And I recognized, holy cow, my son was not talking about anything of this church. And the Holy Spirit said, he's talking about your pastoring him, dad. He doesn't know how you pastor others. He says, thank you, dad, for pastoring me. And I want you to know that you are my great pastor. Thank you for doing that. And that touched me. And God says, that's your vision this year. He's the greatest prophet in my life, man. The way he speaks into my life sometimes, man, I could, I've, I could be experiencing hell. I could be experiencing anxiety. And I see him sometimes. And I look at his eyes. And he just has a way of just looking at me. He has a way of just smiling at me, man. And that son of mine, man, I'm not trying to pump him up because he's a pain in the neck too. Don't get me wrong. There's days, man, that I just want to grab him, bro, and throw him against the wall. Don't get me wrong. You know what I'm trying to say? But, but I'm telling you, God uses that little guy, man. Sometimes just a look, just a phrase, just a word, just a caress. And I just recognize, holy cow, man, when my son touches me, it does something that nothing else can do, man. It's a different kind of intimacy that I have with my wife when the son touches the father. And when my father, when the father starts touching his son. And I believe that in this story right here where Jesus is at in Mark chapter 5, I believe he's teaching something great. I believe he's teaching the picture of heaven. I believe he's saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. I believe he's saying, hey, you guys are so caught up on earth. You guys are so caught up with the things that happen here. My God, think about this. You know how frustrated I get with myself and with some of you guys, man? Because the, some of the things and some of the excuses and some of the decisions that we make in our lives. And I'm just like, you guys don't. And, and all of this stuff God's like it's bigger than all of that junk man I'm revealing to you the kingdom of God I'm revealing to you the heart of the father and I'm revealing to you here in this one story I'm going to show you how I'll touch him and I'm going to show you how she'll touch me and I'm going to show you how both touches come together and they're a beautiful perfect intimate story of what heaven is like heaven is a constantly touching the father and a father constantly touching the son it's a constant revival of intimacy that lives forever that no man can stop man you know what heaven is like it's better than the streets of gold it's better than the 12 gates it's better than the cherubic angels you know what heaven is like it's better than the thunderings and the lightnings you know what heaven is like it's better than the flapping six wings that sound like giant waterfalls when they flap you know what heaven is like it's better than the rumbling you know what heaven is like it's better than the sea of glass you know what heaven is like it's better than when the soul throne room begins to smoke and shake it's better than that heaven is like this it's when the father is intimate with the sons and the sons and daughters are intimate with the father forever and no man can separate that it's the touch it's the touch it's the touch it's the touch that's what heaven is like it's the touch I touch you and you touch me the father touches the son the father touches the daughter the daughter touches the father
the Son touches the Father. Some of us can blame our children, or some of us can blame children, but we'll never recognize. I'm going to say this in liberty and in love. We could complain about children, but we'll never recognize that the condition of that child could be because of the present touch of the parents or because of the absent touch of the parents. You complain a lot about the child, but you've missed the absence of touching the child. And we complain about him and we complain about her when in reality God says, but you failed in the touch. So what you're seeing is you're seeing a product of your touching or a product of your absence of touching. And this is the product of what you have formed. I gave them to you so that you could give them back to me. What did you do with them? In the same way that we do that with our children, they do it in our lives. And I'm describing an earthly relationship to describe something heavenly. You want to know why we are the way we are? Come on, every eye closed, examine yourself here. It's just like the earthly relationships between you and your parent. You want to know why you're so messed up here on this earth? Because, man, your parents tried hard, man. They did the best that they could as through everything that they were going through. With the garbage that they were carrying. They didn't do it with bad intentions. I'll tell you that right now, being a parent. They didn't do it with bad intentions. They tried hard, man. But they failed in certain parts of your life. And right now, some of you deal with some great insecurities because you never heard dad say, I love you, son. Son, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the things that you do. Daughter, you're so beautiful. You're the most beautiful girl in daddy's heart, in daddy's eyes. That daughter just, all you wanted was to dad to look at you in the eyes and say you're beautiful. All you wanted was for your mom to come and stroke your hair and say, gosh, I'm so proud of you, but... Sometimes we're so screwed up here on this earth because, man, it's not that they did it with bad intentions, but, man, they failed at times on the touch. So here we are now in our grown-up years, and we're just a product of the way that our parents did touch us or did not touch us. And I look at that picture, and I say, that's you, that's me, that's us. Let's be real with it. But the reality is, you know who we are here on earth? We're the reality of allowing the Father to touch us or not touch us. Maybe you're the way you still are. Maybe you're in the condition you're still in because really you got to get to a place where he's touching you and you're touching him. And that on earth right now, it's a product of what it looks like when the Father in heaven begins to touch your life. How many of you are really at a place where you just need God to touch you? How many of you are truly at a place where you just need to come and really touch him? This whole touch is so much important to you right now. I wonder how many of you would surrender yourself to that truth right now.